This episode is sponsored by Pediatrics On Call, the new podcast from the American Academy of Pediatrics. Each week, hear the latest news on children's health with advice and tips for doctors and parents alike. Subscribe to Pediatrics On Call and visit aap.org slash on call. Continuing education credits for physicians and other healthcare professionals is provided by VCU Healthcare Continuing Education. Check out cribsiders.vcuhealth.org for more information. The Cribsiders podcast is for entertainment, education, and informational purposes only. The views and statements expressed on this podcast are solely those of the host. All right, you ready? Go, she go, go, Here we go, go. go. Welcome back to the Cribsiders. Uh, I am joined tonight with wonderful co-host, co-founder Chris the Chew Man Chew, Yo. and two outstanding guests, Dr. Lenny Feldman and Dr. Carrie Hertzke from Johns Hopkins to discuss things we do for no reason in pediatrics. Very uh, a sight for this episode. But first, Chris, can you remind us what we do on the show? Well, we are the Pediatric Medicine Podcast. We interview leading experts in the field to bring clinical pearls, practice changing knowledge, and answer lingering questions about core topics in pediatric medicine. And today we have a great conversation with Dr. Hertzke and Dr. Feldman about nebulizer treatment, 48-hour rule-outs, and asmonia diagnosis, and how they may be things we do for no reason. Uh, a quick introduction for both guests, and maybe Chris, I'll let you do Dr. Carrie Hertzke and I'll do Dr. Lenny Feldman. How does that, does that work for you? Works well for me. Beautiful. So Dr. Leonard Lenny Feldman is an associate professor in internal medicine and pediatrics and a hospitalist in the Division of General Internal Medicine at Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine for over 15 years. He received his undergraduate degree at Brown University, his medical degree from the University of Maryland School of Medicine, and completed his combined medicine pediatric residency at University of North Carolina, where he served as a chief resident for the internal medicine residency program. He's the founder and program director of the Johns Hopkins Combined Internal Medicine Pediatrics Urban Health Residency, my alma mater, and the Osler Urban Health Internal Medicine Primary Care Track. He's also the associate program director for the Osler Internal Medicine Residency Program. Lenny has focused his research on urban health, resident education, online education, and high value care. Dr. Carrie Hersky is an assistant professor in internal medicine and pediatrics at the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine. She is the associate vice chair for Clinical Affairs in the Department of Medicine, Director of Clinical Operations for the Hospitalist Program at the Johns Hopkins Hospital. She earned her MD from Virginia Commonwealth University Medical College of Virginia. She completed her residency at the Duke University School of Medicine. Dr. Hersky's research interests include quality improvement, infectious diseases, notably infection control, and resident and student education. So without further ado, ado, <laughs> let's get to it. All right. <laughs> We have two wonderful guests with us today. We have Dr. Lenny Feldman and Dr. Carrie Hersky from uh, Johns Hopkins Hospital. Thanks so much for coming to the show, guys. We'd like to get started by uh, just asking you to tell us a little bit about yourself. Lenny, uh, let's start with you. You've been on the Curbsiders, our big brother show. Can you give us a one-liner to describe yourself? Sure, Justin. Uh, thank you ha for having me back. I'm really excited to be on the Curbsiders. So I'm a 47-year-old husband and a father of a very cute 16-month-old, and I continue to make charitable contributions to the Baltimore Orioles by continuing to be a season ticket holder. <laughs> and I strive to practice high-value care despite the COVID era. 
And I also have great colleagues that I get to work with at Cash Lack, like Carrie, uh, and uh, both are adult and children's hospital. So I have a really good life. <laughs> Amazing. Yeah. Baltimore Orioles, they are perennially in a building year. But I think this is the year. Dr. Hersky, do you have a, <laughs> do you have a one-liner to give us? Sure. I, like Lenny, am a MedPeds doc. We work together and I have three children. And so my life is swim meets when we're allowed to get in the water and other kids activities. I share Lenny's love of Diet Coke and, and unlike Lenny, I'm a Duke fan and a Virginia Cavaliers <laughs> fan. Yeah. Go heels, go. Nice. It's tough to be a sports fan right now, but these what might get, really, exactly. I think there's Korean baseball on now. If you really look hard. Now, um, Dr. Hersky, is it okay if we call you Carrie? We usually ask at yeah. the beginning of the show just to make it easier. Beautiful. Should we ask some questions? Chris can call me Lenny, but but I prefer Justin call me Dr. <laughs> yeah. You know, honestly, I am really excited <laughs> to be on this episode because uh, I, we get to talk to two people that I really look up to and have a lot of, you know, have been kind of heroes of mine and have a lot of information. So I'm really proud to be able to record with Chris and Carrie today. Um, <laughs> could we, you know, be, uh, while, you know, we don't have sports to go, maybe some of us can read and we can do, you know, Lenny, if you want to do a picture book, that's fine. But I was hoping to maybe get a, uh, book recommendation, um, from each of you, any, anyone reading anything good or have any life-changing, uh, books that you think, um, people in the medical field should really read medically related or not. So we shouldn't start off with good night moon, right? Good one. I, yeah. I, yeah. Classic. We're a PDF yeah. podcast. I, I just read that this evening. Good night a moon. Canonical text. Uh, I was going to say Evicted, mm. which is uh, a book by Matthew Desmond, who is an anthropologist at Harvard or was when he wrote the book. It's, I think, one of his four books, and it's amazing. If you have not thought a lot about what life is like for folks who are living on the edge of, of suddenly being evicted from their housing and what that does to their entire life, it's really quite amazing. And certainly many of our patients at Cashlack are facing those issues on a regular basis. And it's just, uh, it's a very easy book uh, to read or listen to. It, it it works really well on Audible and I would very much encourage people to get out and read it. It's a good rec. That was part of the Cashlock Urban Health Book Club, I remember, and that was- Oh, that's cool. Uh, yeah. It was. And Carrie, how about you? Uh, I like anything by Brene Brown. Uh, I think it's really nice to understand shame and vulnerability, both for our patients and our relationships. And, you know, we all have to, I think to be good doctors, we have to be able to be vulnerable. And that's really hard, especially after you go through training. And so I really like her books. I think they're great. And then we're all eating a lot on the few days nowadays when I'm home, I finish lunch only to think about what's for dinner. And so I recommend food by Jim Gaffigan because nice. we all need a little humor. I love Jim Gaffigan. He's the uh, he's the hot pockets guy, isn't he? Yes, hot pockets. <laughs> we'll save that for the nutrition episode. <laughs> so, my question to each of you is: Do you have a favorite failure that you've learned from? Carrie, do you want to go first on this? Oh, there's so many to choose from. Yeah. It's hard uh, to narrow say, it down. I would say ice skating. Um, <laughs> for those of you that, like all of you that don't know me, except for. Lydia and Justin, I'm not the most graceful person. And so ice skating taught me to just keep getting back up, fall down and get back up again. That's a good one. That's a good one. I can't ice skate. I have weak ankles. <laughs> <laughs> I don't have an excuse, but I can't ice skate. Lenny, do you, I'm sure you must have some failures. Oh, I have so many stories. I'm going to go back to one in high school 
when I was, I think, a sophomore or a freshman, I decided I was going to run for the student government at our high school, at Wild Lake High School in Columbia, Maryland. And the guy I was running against was going to be a senior. He was like a a star on the soccer team. Uh, I was also on the soccer team, but I was on the JV and not a star. And I thought I could run against this guy. And what he said in his speech when we had to give our speeches was vote for Lenny. He wants to do this and I really don't. (laughs) And I lost. (laughs) And I think it was just a really good experience early on to know that life isn't always fair. And even when the guy doesn't want to do the job, if he's running, he still or she still may win. And you just got to get back. I think like what Carrie said, you just got to get back up off the ice and and try again. And I've had a better career in student government later on, but it was it was certainly eye-opening that that the world does not always operate the way you think it should. All right. Good life lesson. Should we start? Should we get into it now, Justin? I think let's do it. Let's let's get started. All right. So who wants to describe what things we do for no reason or as we're abbreviating a lot, TWDFNR? Oh, that, I love the abbreviation. Well, I'll take it because I started doing these talks in 2012, I think, at the Society of Hospital Medicine that Dan Brotman at the time said, hey, Lenny, uh, this might be fun for you to do called non-evidence-based medicine, colon, things we do for no reason. And we've still just kind of gone on with the things we do for no reason. And I did a few years of talks uh, at the Society of Hospital Medicine annual meeting. They were fun. It was a great thing to do. And after a while, we started, I had come up with enough of these that I said, this would be fun to start publishing. And went to Andy Auerbach, who was the editor for the Journal of Hospital Medicine at the time, and said, can we do something like this uh, in the journal? And he said, sure. And so we've been running with this ever since, around 2015 or so, and have published over 50 different articles and things we do for no reason And basically, we're still doing the low-hanging fruit of high-value care in things we do for no reason. So this is stuff that it doesn't help, and all it does is make a mess of things and cost us stuff and cause problems that we're doing it and doesn't, in the end, do any good for our patients. So this isn't the, the really difficult gray area thing of maybe one costs a little bit more than the other, but this one might work a little bit better than that. Which should we do? That's not the question here. It's these things don't help really much at all, and we should probably stop doing them on a regular basis. Why, why do we do them then? We do them because we were taught to do them. I mean, the people have lots of different reasons why we do them. To me, I think the main final reason is you all went to residency. I went to residency. Carrie went to residency. We went to residency to learn how to practice. And so we were taught these things in residency, and then we keep doing them until we somehow unlearn them 10 to 15 years down the road. I once had an attending who uh, one day we would, when we were rounding, after we would make a plan, he would ask a section of the plan and say, is this evidence-based or is this religion? And we'd be like, oh, I don't know. And then that sort of, how we sort of looked at some of these sort of low-value care things as well. But I mean, I, I love the series. I'm so happy to be able to finally talk to you. Um, looking forward to this episode as well. And, and I, it's interesting because I think people come up with all sorts of other reasons why they ha- why it happens. Defensive medicine, we're covering our butts. And I think some of that plays into it. 
And probably that's why we were taught to do some of it. But I don't think many of us were taught to do it because we were trying to cover our butts. I think many of us were just taught to do it. And we we thought that was the way to do it then. And I, I agree. I, I think it's this it's the religion thing. And and it may be in pediatrics that we even do more of these things by religion than internal medicine. But it, it runs rampant in both of them for sure. There's peer pressure too. If you try to not do something that is religion, that's, there's a lot of pressure. Yeah. One of, one of our interns who has uh, appeared on many a podcast, Mike Rose the other day was like, I, I wanted to do metformin in the hospital. And everyone was like, that's crazy. And it's probably going to be a things we do for no reason of, of why we stop metformin in the hospital. Because there, there probably really isn't a good reason that we do it. Uh, we all like to talk about lactic acidosis and stuff, but it's just one of those things. And yet they, he was looked at like he had three eyes at Cashlack because he even dared to bring up the idea of, of continuing metformin in the hospital. We'll have to Dare bring you to be back. Be brave. Yeah. The Renee Brown story. That's right. Uh, <laughs> Should we talk about that first? <laughs> and, and there's certainly many stories about Justin as a resident <laughs> asking why we were doing things, particularly on pediatrics, that then I, as his program director, would hear why is Justin so difficult. Uh, and I, you know, That was a real story. I don't complain to you. But, uh, yeah, this is a real story. <laughs> and it's, uh, that just, it warmed my heart that he was being difficult. I know. That was, that was a nice one-on-one -on -one session. That's when I, yeah. Did you, did you ever ask about <laughs> I have nothing to say. I'm just very warm. <laughs> Did you ever ask about nebulizers and MDIs? You know, also, uh, actually, the uh, asmonia, which we'll get to, was one of the, the, the things that came up. But it's a great segue, Chris. Let's, let's get into the meat of the issue because we got some great content lined up. And our, our first patient talks about nebulizers versus MDIs. And so, Lenny, let's say we're in the Cashlat Children's Hospital Emergency Department, and a 13-year-old with known asthma presents, and he has some wheezing and cough and is pretty consistent with previous asthma exacerbations. He started on steroids and continuous albuterol nebulizer for a while, eventually spaced to Q2 hour nebulizer albuterol. And in talking about how we're delivering this medicine albuterol, we basically have two options, the nebulizer and the MDI. What are the difference between these two? And, and what, what's the story? What's the common practice? Why, what are we doing and what should we be doing? And then we used to have a third option, which you're too, I think, young to remember. But probably Carrie and I both saw patients w way back when with the Alupent syrup. The, yeah, it was like the liquid, the useless, yeah. useless liquid. It was <laughs> the, a thing. It was I've a thing. Never heard of that. Yes, oh yeah, albuterol liquid, baby. Drink your beta agonist. That's the way to make it work. Uh, huh. So that's, I, I think that's probably just off the market at this point because it it didn't We're really. Old. <laughs> We're old. Uh, so, so the nebulizers aerosolizing the medication. And we're all very aware of aerosolization right now uh, with, with in the COVID era and being worried about aerosolizing things. But we think of it as this magical mist that will bring that a medication right to where it needs to go in the lungs because you're inhaling it. And, and there's just something in the air when you've got this aerosolization going on that, that uh, we all feel like will make that, that medication go where it needs to go versus the MDI, the metered dose inhaler that will spray that medication right into your lung and, and hopefully where it needs to go to be deposited uh, in the lungs. Uh, so you, you've kind of got these, these two options 
Uh, there are some other options as well, but those are kind of the two big options that we think about on a regular basis. And and most of us are just really used to using those nebulizers. Like you think inpatient and uh, or ER, and that's the medication you use in the ER or in the hospital, that nebulizer, where you stick that mask on the kid, the kid wriggles around for a while and takes the mask off every five seconds and you put it back on. And eventually after 10, 15 minutes, you assume a lot of that medication has made it into their lungs. And and kind of the religion of how we deliver albuterol in beta agonists in the hospital and in the ED. It is good at making kids cry. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And so they'll take a lot of deep breaths as they cry. So that's probably a good thing. Yeah. I mean, I, uh, I think but these thoughts are also thought you know, parents even think so, right? Like they, they want that nebulizer machine at home. They, you know, they demand yeah. it. And so. And, and in general, I, I'm not going to sit here. And I, I don't think it's that important for us to say that MDIs somehow are better than NEBs. I don't think that's true. I think they're probably in the end equivalent. And we've got a couple of different meta-analyses. There was one in about 2005 from the American College of Chess Physicians. There's a Cochrane review on this in 2013 that basically says that they're equivalent. The the one thing that you probably have going for you with the MDIs is that there's a little bit less tremulousness. There's a little bit less tachycardia when you're using the MDI versus the NEBs. But, but in the end, they're probably pretty similar. And there may be some trends of decreased uh, risk of hospitalization when your patient's in the ED if they use the MDI versus the NEB. But I, I'm not, I don't think it's important for us to say, hey, it's got to be the MDI or it's got to be the NEB. I think they both have their place in, in different settings. I, I think the important part, though, is you do need MDIs in settings, in particular settings. And the only way that you get good at using those MDIs is if you're taught to use them a lot. And so particularly you think about as an outpatient, you're not lugging around a nebulizer everywhere you go, or your life is really quite painful to have to lug around a nebulizer everywhere you go. You need the MDI to go places. And so you want that medication to be able to work well. And, and then in this era, you need that MDI because you don't want to have to have every medication aerosolized when you have patients who possibly could have COVID and, and it's a great way of spreading it to lots of uh, different patients. And so when there's good evidence that they're both uh, efficacious and maybe that MDIs have a slight benefit in their side effect profile, other than education, are there other drawbacks to using nebulizers in the emergency room? I don't, I don't think there are a ton of them. And, and I think the, the really important part is the data on this is almost always about patients who are not in extremis, not status asthmaticus, right? I, I think we're all going to start with our patients who are really sick, putting them on nebulizers. And I think it's very reasonable to do so. I think the drawback is if you never give the MDI, the patient doesn't learn how to use the MDI. And what there, what is very clear, and there's lots of different studies on this, and in, in your show notes, uh, we can uh, refer to one of these, one of the meta-analyses that just shows that kids, adults, nobody knows how to use their MDI very well. And then there's this very cute study uh, where they looked, where they asked kids, are you confident in how you use your medication? Uh, and the, whether the kid was confident or whether the kid was not confident, 
they all messed up how they were using their medications. And the boys shockingly were more overconfident than everybody else uh, and really didn't do any better than anybody else and actually probably did a little bit worse. So the overconfident boy was the worst in all of this. So that just that to take away from that is no one's very good at it and we need to keep educating. And if we don't take the time to educate and one of the great times I think to educate is one of the times you need to use the medication, which is when you're in the hospital, then your patients are never going to get good at using these MDIs. So every opportunity we have to educate, we should. And I think it, it really points out one of the issues around sort of efficacy versus effectiveness. The studies show there's efficacy in terms of the albuterol MDI is as good, if maybe not better than the NEB. But I think in real world effectiveness, if we have not taught the kids and the parents how to use the MDI well, they are not going to be effective. So I have two questions. One is when we talk about MDIs and effectiveness, are we talking about MDIs by themselves where they're spraying the back of their throat and swallowing it? Or are you talking about spacey <laughs> devices or what are we talking about here? Yeah, I think in general, uh, you're almost always talking about the MDI with spacer when when you're looking at the, the Cochrane review and some of the other meta-analyses. It's about MDIs with spacers. And so I, I would encourage us all the time to be using the spacers. There are people who are good uh, at using their MDI without a spacer, but I think they are few and far between. And certainly for your pediatric patients, I would be using the MDI with spacer. And then you're also talking about with the little ones, the MDI with spacer and mask on top of it. Now, my second question is sort of for almost like a logistical, practical thing. So say I'm in my, my clinic and urgent clinic or whatnot, and I'm having my, you know, uh, my patient come in and they're, you know, maybe in uh, asthma exacerbation, but a mild one. So if they happen to have their MDI with them, then obviously it'd be a great time to teach them, make sure they're using it right and, and administer advice. But from a practical standpoint, a lot of times I'm not going to have a whole bunch of MDIs in my room. I have, I've got a bunch of out. Albuterol, little saline things, and yeah. I have my NEB devices. So I think maybe that's why, in maybe those situations, why we seem to to to, to use those more often because those are what we we stock. Absolutely, I think that sort of propagates the idea for the parents that the it's the NEB that's the better medication because that's the medication they get yeah. when they go to see their doctor. And it's it's absolutely true that for many people that and and clinics and hospitals that the nebulizer actually may be cheaper medication than the MDI and really it's only in the hospital when the respiratory therapist is also charging you uh, for the neb that then the neb tends to be then more expensive than the MDI if the, if the respiratory therapist isn't leaving a charge then usually the MDI is actually more expensive. So I, I don't blame anybody for having the, the nebulizer in their clinic. I think though, then when you send them home with the MDI as well, you need to give the resources for them to learn how to use it correctly. And that can be the pharmacist. The pharmacist is a great adjunct to teaching this. That can be videos. Um, there are lots of videos online of how to use your MDI correctly. So I, 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 don't, I don't care how you learn how to do it. And, it, and certainly would love to have RTs and uh, your pediatricians demonstrating how to do it, but someone needs to teach them if we ever want them to be able to use it well. And of course, there are times that they're going to need to use it at an MDI when they're not going to be able to get to that nebulizer. And so they, they need to know how to use it correctly. I think that's great. I uh, don't want to belabor the point. Maybe 
do a quick overall recommendations on this and then go naturally. Can I add one more Related thing? Related to Yeah, well, yeah. Well, the, I think the other issue of this effect, uh, efficacy versus effectiveness is about dosing. And the there has been forever, I, I don't know, Justin, when you were an intern or when you were a med student before, before I got to you, how many uh, puffs were you told to give of that MDI for a patient if they were feeling short of breath or needed a treatment? I, honestly, I think it depended by four puffs is what initially came to mind, but four to eight puffs. Yeah. I think most of us were taught too, right? I, I don't know, Chris, I don't know what you were taught. Carrie, way back when? Two. Uh, two. Two. And I was taught two. And I always thought two was the right number. And and I think if you ask most of the residents at Cashlac, although we've been trying to belabor this point at Cashlac, they would say two. And, and it is a good way of saving money and cash lack. We don't have any. So it's a good way of saving money to only give two puffs, but it's a bad way of actually treating the patient because in one of the reasons that I think patients think their nebulizer works better is that you're actually delivering a higher dose. And so if you want your MDI to be equivalent in dosing to your neb, then you need to give the right number of puffs, which I think Justin talked about correctly sort of, I, I sort of think of the 2.5 milligram neb as around four puffs. And I think of the five milligram neb as more six to eight. And I've heard people say up to 10 to 12. I don't, I, that's starting to get in the stratosphere, but it's a lot more than two. I can tell you that. Interesting. Interesting. So to, to summarize, Lenny, can you give us what's the overall recommendation for a patient with asthma exacerbation in the emergency department or inpatient setting? What's the overall recommendation for using a meter dose inhaler versus a nebulizer? Yeah. And I, I think our friends at Cashlack in California, in San Francisco, at a very famous Cashlack in San Francisco, they have a great program where you get nebulizers for the first 24 hours and then uh, go on to the MDI. And I think that's a very reasonable approach. Make sure that the patient isn't too sick, that they can't use the MDI correctly if they're coming to the hospital. And obviously in the, in the ED, if they don't look that sick, you can start with the MDI. But if they're going to be getting admitted, that hopefully means they're relatively sick. So start with the, the nebulizer and then as quickly as possible, get to the MDI so that they can be taught how to use that correctly and that they can be weaned using the MDI and then uh, send them home with, with the MDI as well. And make sure you are using the correct number of doses of that MDI as you're weaning them or they're going to fail. Great. Love it. All right. So uh, why don't we move on to our next case now? So, so Carrie, this one will we'll direct towards you. So we have a three-week-old full-term male infant who was noted to feel warm at home and had a rectal temperature of 101.3 degrees. In the emergency department, he was well-appearing, had normal physical uh, exam findings, and had the routine sepsis workup. He had a normal chest x-ray. He had a normal CBC, normal CSF counts and normal urinalysis. The blood CSF and urine cultures were collected and are pending. And we started them on IV antibiotics. The next morning on rounds, mom says, my kid looks fine. I want to get out of here. I want to go home. But dogma is that we are doing a 48-hour rule-out. We need to observe this kid for two days. Can you talk a little bit about what, what's the historical background of this 48-hour rule-out and what, what, what's the justification of, of the two-day observation? Oh, the magic of 48 hours, right? Uh, <laughs> the magic. So this is actually something that's really interesting when you look at the scholarship 
is an area where we actually have a ton of literature in pediatrics, uh, most of which we ignore, which is why this is a great things we do for no reason and why I love to talk about this. The residents that I round with know that I just step up on my little grandstand when we have a fever and an infant, and then I hopefully for them step down after I explain why 48 hours uh, should not be the magic number anymore. So the 48 hours was based on some studies that were in the late seventies, back when that albuterol syrup was still around. (laughs) Um, I was prescribed some myself as a young, youngin. And uh, it was when the plates were looked at by a person for blood cultures, urine cultures, and CSF. And so what we call the time to positivity or the time from when you collect and plate the blood culture or place it in the lab to the time that we know it's positive was artificially long. And I'll talk about why that is different now in a second. The other thing is that the studies were a little bit messy. And so the studies included some of the NICU kids. And for those of us that have rounded in the NICU, those pediatric patients are not not the same as any other pediatric patients on the face of earth. There's different beings in the NICU and they grow weird things and weird things sometimes take a long time to grow or patients that are critically ill in the, in the ICU. So patients that have risk for fungemia, for example, that takes a long time, longer time to grow, but the normal neonate doesn't have a risk for fungemia. And so those studies sort of made the 48 hours dogma because it was all these different populations blended together. Plus, they were waiting for people to physically look at the plates to say, yep, this one grew. And then in the late 80s, they actually developed these these neat machines just for blood cultures. It's different still for CSF and urine cultures. That There's two different ways that the machines work, but the most common one uh, is that they use a CO2 detector. And so as soon as an organism starts to grow, there's a the machine beeps. And so there's no longer a need to wait for someone to say, oh, it's, it's, it's noon. I will go look at all these blood cultures. The blood culture tells them when it's positive instead of them telling us. And that, as you can imagine, shortened significantly the time to positivity. And so it made it so that about 97% of real organisms will grow by 24 hours. And in fact, the ones that grow after that are increasingly more likely to be contaminants like the kiddo on my service in which they scooped the blood culture off of his arm. And so it isn't a surprise that it grew cognitive staph because that is what is in your arm. But unfortunately, is not probably what is in that child's blood. And so that's crazy. So you said if in 24 hours, what percent is, for, or what's the average time, what's the time to positivity so within for 20, 24 hours? So for, so for 24 hours, it's 91% of organisms will be positive. And by 36 hours, it's 97%. Got it. So at 36 hours, we can, if there's a true pathogen, there's a 97% chance that it would have grown at that point. Is Correct. that amazing? Right. So we, you know, in pediatrics, we're really nervous about the zero to 28 day infants, but it doesn't actually, the time to positivity doesn't change that much for the kids that are less than 28 days if they're not in the NICU and the kids that are older than 28 days. And again, the reason the NICU matters is because they are at higher risk to grow uh, fungus and fungus doesn't play by these roles. It's a different organism. And as far as the blood cultures versus the urine and CSF, you said that urine and CSF is slightly different. Can you talk about that as far as our management? Should we be waiting for urine cultures and CSF cultures to come back? Is that worth keeping a kid for 48 hours? 
Well, urine cultures actually are, they are not put in the special machine, which you will recognize, right? Because the blood is collecting those special tubes at all of our institutions. And that's why it's because they go in the special machines, but not CSF that you so painstakingly collect and, and urine. Those are still plated. However, what's interesting is most urine cultures were reported out historically at the 24 hour mark anyway. And so most of the, almost all of those will grow within the first 24 hours as well. And interestingly, CSF, even though the time to positivity is artificial because it, it's at most of our institutions, someone looks at it only once or twice a day, uh, that the large number of, of CSF cultures that are positive are still going to grow within the first 36 hours. I love the imagery that uh, a machine just beeps when it sees something growing. I, that made sense. I've just never really thought of it. But now I imagine the lab with just silence and then occasional like microwave <laughs> right. beeps. And it's like, oh, crap, someone. That's right. <laughs> That's a critical value. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. And that, so if we get most of our results by 36 hours, like what, what if we wanted just to keep the kid for a full 48 hours just for my, making me feel a little better? Are there any harms to doing that? <laughs> Well, I think it's important to understand the numbers. So the difference between 36 hours and 48 hours, you have to keep kids. The numbers needed to evaluate for that extra time period is 5,000 to 11,000. The last time I checked, we didn't, we weren't on the side of having lots of healthcare dollars that we needed to spend because we were spending a lot of those already. So it's expensive. But really, it's also, really, we're talking about very young infants, and we're really trying to encourage moms to breastfeed. You can imagine being in the hospital is not super conducive to breastfeeding. Uh, We have super uncomfortable cots that that fold out into beds that are made for people less than five feet at our hospital. And so, you know, it's not comfortable to be in the hospital for an extra night. And many families, if this is not their first child, have other uh, children or job responsibilities and this, this can be pretty disruptive. Plus, all of us have gotten that page where so-and-so lost their IV and can't get another one, and they stuck the poor kid seven or eight times, and you go in there like, poor kid's arms are bruised. And so this also supports that you don't need to keep the IV in for quite as long as well. And, and as, the, as the pediatric COVID attending right now, you also don't want to be exposed to me any longer than you need to be. <laughs> Now, That's is- true regardless of COVID. <laughs> not, Lenny is not spreading COVID. He's being the COVID patient. Just to uh, that is, I understand. Now, that it, is correct. Somebody is it- clearly explained his role this week differently. <laughs> is there ever a time that we need to, to, see, to keep these patients longer than 36 hours then? You know, in medicine, there's almost never an absolute. So there are times, like so many other things, that you would want to keep a kid longer. So the kids that I keep longer are the kid for whom they're, you know, you need to think about HSV, right? So in that window, I worry most around day 14 to 21. And in some of our institutions, it takes longer to get the HSV back. And so if HSV is a concern and you don't have the PCR back, then that may be a reason to keep the child Hopefully more and more of our institutions are running the HSV PCRs quickly, but in many places over the weekend, you get a little bit stuck. And so that would be one, one reason. And in that vein, you know, so we can all remember the number of times where the LP was a little bit challenging to get. And so had a fair number of white blood cell count or white blood cells. And even though in studies, there are no CSF cultures that grew after the 36 hour and only 
0.03% of urine culture, so almost none. I do tend to think harder about keeping kids when their CSF, when their their cell count on their CSF uh, is very high, just to make sure that I'm not missing something there. And obviously, if the kid isn't well appearing, you really should should avoid in general discharging kids that are ill appearing from the hospital. That that does that's why they come to us, and we should fix that before they go home. And and I think that it brought up the good point that that we didn't uh, talk about quite as much a little bit earlier, but. In terms of CSF and in terms of urine culture, you also, when you're doing those studies, you have the urine analysis or you have the CSF Mm -hmm. analysis that really should prime you to begin with as to whether you think create sort of a pretest probability as to whether that culture is going to be positive anyway. And so many of us, you know, if you have a totally clear urine and a totally clear CSF, don't expect in any way that 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 CSF or uh, urine culture is going to come back positive. So, Carrie, with the knowledge that we can safely discharge kiddos home at the 36-hour mark or earlier than waiting the full two days, are there examples of hospitals doing this? Is this something that is cost-saving or, or has this been like tested in kind of an institutional setting? I mean, one could argue that it's been actually tested throughout the reams and reams and reams of literature that has been published about this. I do think it's really interesting to think about the Rochester folks, actually. They were pretty brave when they did this study because people must have thought that they were crazy to think about doing anything besides the 48-hour rollout. Uh, And then it's neat to see the progression from Rochester and Boston and Philly to see the protocol changes as people realize that we would not discharge children for, for, to have them die of meningitis, you know, two days after discharge at home. And, and, and so I think the literature is really interesting in this. And there are, there are countless studies. Justin and I worked on a LP paper, and Justin can uh, painfully probably recount the hundreds of citations in that paper because this has been so well studied. So I would argue those are, are, are very good basis uh, for where this has been done well uh, with lots of evidence, but it's also been put into practice. This is an area where you see lots of differences in practices, even at baseline. So our primary care providers have long been very variable and probably in the forefront of uh, being more willing to tolerate this uh, uh, uncertainty of, of our febrile young infants because they don't uh, hospitalize every single one of them actually. And then haven't for a long time since some of these studies came out. So, so I would argue in, in uh, emergency rooms and in private practices or in pediatricians' offices, this is already done somewhat variable. But there's also been places like Intermountain Health where they really tried to do this in a very uh, synchronized way. And they've had really, really very good outcomes in terms of uh, tiny, tiny, tiny numbers of positive cultures after they've discharged the kids. And as you can imagine, it, most families really like the idea of being able to go home, so it's family friendly, uh, and it saves money. Amazing, excellent. So to to summarize everything for the the forty eight hour rule out, Carrie, can you give us what are the overall recommendations for for the observation period in a well appearing febrile infant? So in general, in a well appearing febrile infant, you, you can use one of whatever score you like because there's approximately four hundred of those scores too, which I think is some of the problem because there's so many different scores to choose from. But if you, in any of the low-risk criteria, if your infant fits that and looks good, you can feel very, very, very comfortable discharging the infant at 36 hours, because the chance that something will be positive is almost nil. 
And there's an eight time, there's an eight fold increase of contaminant after that time, if something does grow. And you can even think about if they have very good follow-up, discharge at 24 hours, actually, because you're still going to have 91% of the organisms that would have grown. And again, like Lenny had mentioned, these are kiddos that you don't really expect to be bacteremic or have meningitis in the first place or UTI or pilo. You'll catch the vast majority of infants even at, at 24 hours. So if you're really brave, you can do 24. If you're more cautious, 36. But please, if that kid is well-appearing and ha- is low risk, send that kid home at somewhere between 24 and 36 hours. Carrie, for the for the ones that you're sending home at 24, are, are you giving them a dose of ceftriaxone out the door? You know, the studies suggest that you don't actually need to do that, though. I often do that just for my own, because I'm a chicken. Uh, but... <laughs> In some of the studies, they actually didn't. And again, so few of those blood cultures will turn positive. But but it can be a way to reassure yourself that if you're somewhere between the 24 and 36 hour mark, if you give them the dose of ceftriaxone, that does buy you 12 to 24 hours of coverage, depending on if you're covering for bacteremia or meningitis. Yeah. And for those who are listening, who are just sort of glossing by, thinking about it, again, the disclaimer is well-appearing infant. We got to emphasize that enough. Because I think sometimes please do not send your ill-appearing infant home at any period. Yes, please. That like there's no timeline for ill-appearing. That kid should not be discharged. And again, you do need to think about um, how concerned you are for HSV and whether that that rollout has been accomplished in this time period. Because many of these younger infants will still be in the prime time for HSV, and so it's something to think about. Um, because the ceftriaxone obviously does nothing for HSV. And you think about some of those, the primary care doctors who see these kids who are febrile, who don't even bother to send them in because they look right. good. And and they end up almost all the time doing really well because so few kids have a serious bacterial infection that's that's going to cause problems. And if they do, they're going to declare themselves and, and, and come in the door. So it's we're, we're taking even less risk because we've already given them 24 hours of antibiotics. <laughs> When the when the primary care physicians are often uh, not doing any of that and don't have any of the lab data, right? Well, and it works because, as you said, the prevalence is so low. Because all, we hear this very high prevalence for serious bacterial infections in these infants, but the vast majority is urine infections with where they're not bacteremic and they don't have meningitis. And it's really interesting. The kids that get missed don't come back critically ill in all of these studies, and so that's something else that's really reassuring. That's great. This is great data, and we'll put stuff in the show notes. And I think this is super helpful. And I I love carrying the caveat of when they're not, uh, or when they are ill appearing, to keep them. Because sometimes I think for myself, and I think as a resident, a student, you're so excited by some of the things we do for no reason literature. You just apply it everywhere and say, you know, this person was bat dreaming three days ago, but now they're negative twenty four hours, so they can go home. And it's like, Justin, they're still in the ICU. That's not a good <laughs> idea at all. Like, um, right. I remember like all of the, all of these things are guidelines. And so that doesn't trump clinical judgment. That's why we are doctors. And and I think if you, if you look at our articles and things we do for no reason, we really try to have a section in every one where there may be times that you might actually think of doing this thing. There may be times that it, it is appropriate to do this or that, keep them for 48 hours, use the nebulizer, but it's, it's the knee-jerk reaction that you never do these things. That's sort of the things we do for no reason. 
We are sponsored by Pediatrics On Call, the new podcast from the American Academy of Pediatrics. Each week, hear the latest news on children's health with advice and tips for doctors and parents alike. Subscribe to Pediatrics On Call and visit aap.org slash on call. Asmonia kind of would fit in that, Lenny. So asmonia is one of my favorite <laughs> topics because this is what I uh, got reported to my program director about. What What is asmonia? Uh, and, and you still got to graduate, so that's great. I know. That's, and you have a great uh, job at Cashlack. Like, it is such a great job. Cashlack, Providence, Rhode Island is a solid, it's a solid gig. Yeah. Um, so let's let's move on. Let's 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 hit this next patient. So so Lenny, you're you're in the Cashlack Memorial Emergency Department, and the next patient is a five year old boy who comes in with fever, shortness of breath, runny nose, and significant wheezing on exam. Vital signs are uh, showing a little bit of catypnea. He has an asthma exacerbation. It's pretty clear, but a chest X-ray is ordered, and does demonstrate some slight obscurement of the left heart border. The patient's ultimately treated for the asthma exacerbation, but also given high-dose amoxicillin with the presumed diagnosis of community-acquired pneumonia. So our patient has two conditions that he's being treated for, asthma and pneumonia. And is there data that these entities coexist? Is there a combination of asthma and pneumonia or known as asmonia? Asmonia. So, I, you know, I, I think that's a hard question is, is there data that they coexist, right? There's data that we diagnose both of them in patients. I'm not sure there's data that they coexist, right? So even though we may diagnose them, that doesn't mean they actually have that, right? So the first question that you ask yourself is this five-year-old boy who comes in with an asthma exacerbation, and let's say that he's known to have asthma. This is not his first rodeo why did we get a chest x-ray in the first place, right? Because that leads you down the pathway to then even considering whether they might have pneumonia. You wouldn't have thought about it if you never got that chest x-ray because you would just would have had a wheezing child who has maybe a little bit of a fever and you're like, well, of course they've got a virus and so that's fine. And we'll treat them for their asthma exacerbation. But just by getting that chest x-ray, now you've created the scenario, which is not an uncommon scenario at all, that they may uh, actually have pneumonia along with it. And there was, there is FIS data that I think was what, from 2007 to 2012, they looked at all the patients who had the diagnosis of community-acquired pneumonia out of what, 42 hospitals. And 43% of those patients not only had the diagnosis of community-acquired pneumonia, but also had the diagnosis of an asthma exacerbation. So it's diagnosed a lot. Does it really exist in all those cases? I would argue probably not for most of those patients. Well, most of the pneumonia is probably viral anyway. Yes. Yeah. And, and so that's, I think, a, a really, really good point is there's that great New England Journal article from 2015 where they looked at the causes of pneumonia in children. And what you'll see is that there is uh, very few children who have bacterial pneumonia um, when they are young. So when you're certainly less than six months old, it's very infrequent. When you're less than two years old, it's a little bit more frequent, but it's very infrequent still. And it's not until you get older and older that you start to see more kids who are actually having bacteria, bacterial pneumonia as the cause of their uh, pneumonia that, that's bringing them in. So 
I, you know, most of the time when you have the a kid who's less than five years old and that you're treating for uh, community acquired pneumonia, probably uh, 80% of it at least is viral pneumonia that, that you end up treating. And so how do you approach the situation? If you're the uh, attending on the pediatric wards and a patient has been admitted to you with an obscurement on X-ray, has been started on antibiotics, the parents have been explained yeah. that your child has pneumonia, the thing that killed grandpa, you know, how do you, how do you approach this patient? You know, what, what do you do? How do, how do we treat the patient in the best way? Well, you I think Jackson, right? <laughs> yeah. I, I think the, the first question you ask yourself is, does bacteria cause an asthma exacerbation? So there have been studies, both in adults and children, where they look at the kids, or they look at the adults who are having asthma exacerbations, and they try to uh, test them for all sorts of viruses and bacteria. And then they have a control group, and they test them for all sorts of viruses and bacteria. And they want to see if there's a difference in these two groups. So there's a one study of 100 adults where they did that. Now, there were at least 30 adults who had a virus in the asthma exacerbation group where very, very, very few of them did in the control I'm healthy group. And there were a few patients in uh, both groups that had ended up having strep pneumonia, interestingly, this healthy group where they ended up having strep pneumonia. But that didn't seem to be different between the two groups. So it doesn't seem like strep pneumonia is causing the asthma exacerbation. And the one bacteria that seemed to be a little bit different between the two groups was mycoplasma, that there was more mycoplasma in the asthma exacerbation group than in the control group. And they followed, there's a, another study where they looked at just the kids and they didn't have a control group. They just looked at kids who were having an asthma exacerbation. And like it was 160 some kids and 140 of them had a virus. And then another 20 of them also had mycoplasma. And usually if you had mycoplasma, you also had a virus at the same time, but they didn't find any other bacteria in those kids. So in general, I would say almost no bacterial infection causes an asthma exacerbation other than possibly mycoplasma pneumonia. And we talked about how often a bacterial infection causes community-acquired pneumonia at all in little kids. And the number of little kids that actually have community-acquired pneumonia from mycoplasma is even a smaller percentage of those kids. So it's rare that a less than five-year-old actually has mycoplasma, which is the only bacteria that we think may possibly cause an asthma exacerbation. So if they almost never have mycoplasma, and that's the only bacteria, well, then it's got to be a virus that's probably causing their asthma exacerbation if it is something infectious causing their asthma exacerbation. So that's what I tell the family is that I don't think that there's a bacteria here that's causing this. And I don't think that your child's getting any benefit out of this. And really only your child can only get the risk of getting the antibiotic, which is the diarrhea and the rash that they're going to get at some point because they had a virus that then we're going to say maybe that's from the, the antibiotic and all of the crazy stuff that then happens about, oh, no, now they have a penicillin allergy and I can't ever give them amoxicillin again. And it's, it's a mess. So just try not to expose them to the antibiotic and let them get better uh, on their own. Well, there's also some interesting uh, studies looking at mycoplasma in very young kids, and it's not even clear that treating the mycoplasma in very young kids does anything. 
Yeah, and Eric Biondi has Eric Biondi, who is the clinical director of our Cashlack Hospitalist Division in Baltimore, uh, did a nice meta-analysis on uh, treating mycoplasma pneumonia, and their meta-analysis was pretty equivocal about whether you improve by treating that mycoplasma pneumonia. Now, what's interesting is there are some other uh, studies where they looked at patients who got a combination of sort of the usual antibiotics like ampicillin or amoxicillin for pneumonia and got a macrolide along with it. And there there does seem to be some data that if you are an older child who gets both of those, you seem to do a little bit better than the child who only got that penicillin or beta-lactam kind of drug. But the younger children they didn't seem to get any benefit out of getting both of those antibiotics. So, and that kind of makes sense, right? Because the younger children don't have mycoplasma and the older children possibly could have mycoplasma as part of their pneumonia scenario. So the only kids that I'm thinking about at all of treating for mycoplasma pneumonia are the older kids to begin with. And most of many of our kids who we have having asthma exacerbations are are less than five-year-olds. And as far as the acute exacerbation of asthma, is there any thought if the azithromycin is treating mycoplasma, which, as Carrie pointed out, it seems like the evidence isn't great for, or is it this anti-inflammatory property that might be helping? Yeah, so there's a Cochrane on this that, what, it's from 2018. Cochrane did a antibiotics for asthma exacerbation and found six studies. I think four of them were adult studies, two for kids. And the adult studies were the bigger studies and the kids studies had like 40 patients in them. They were pretty darn small. And from their analysis, they thought that maybe it improved peak flow by treating the asthma exacerbation with an antibiotic. And right, they weren't telling you why they were using the antibiotic. They were just using the antibiotic. And in many of these, some of them, when they were fluoroquinolones, some of them were macrolides like azithromycin. But the, the general conclusion was that it may improve symptoms, it may improve peak flow, but it really didn't uh, improve anything other than that. And it was only really tested in patients who were in EDs, not in hospitalized patients. So it's really hard to know that we don't have data that in general, our hospitalized kids are getting, are improving by being given antibiotics. Although we know they do get antibiotics a lot, whether they're in the ED, there's like a 20 to 25% of patients, whether they're children or adults who have been having some exacerbation who are prescribed an antibiotic. It's kind of like taking hydroxychloroquine for COVID. It's so hard to argue that when you give them two mix per kick for prednisone for five days, that they need any more anti-inflammatory. At least <laughs> that's a very good point. That's a great point, point, Gary. That's a great point. So to break it down, then what what are the overall recommendations then in these patients with asthma exacerbations and a question of pneumonia? Yeah. So overall, don't get the chest X-ray in your kid who has known asthma in the first place, because then you don't go down that road. And the only ones that I'm going to ever think about doing it in, in, is the older kid who has a scenario that really sounds like walking pneumonia as all as part of all of this. And if I don't have that scenario, it is very unlikely that I'm going to give an antibiotic. Have I given antibiotics to kids who, who are wheezing and there was this sort of kind of thing on the chest x-ray? Yes, I'm sure I've done it. And I'm sure I've done it this year because it happens all the time. 
but I really try hard not to give the antibiotic unless there's a, a really good scenario for why mycoplasma might be playing a role. Maybe in the future, you can do a show on how long to use that antibiotic, because that's another thing we yep. do for no reason. Yes. Yeah, this is, I think, gonna be a I mean, this is a popular topic. Yeah, anytime you guys want to do things we do for no reason yeah. episodes, we will we will clear Chris's schedule. I, <laughs> I gave that talk to uh, to my pediatric residents this week, so that, that was fun. Oh, nice. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So uh, a great show for, for everyone uh, that was listening. Can each of you give maybe one or two big take-home points that you want the listeners to, to go away with that they can put into practice? Carrie, you go first. I think in general, when you're when you are rounding, I think the the question of that Chris brought up of religion versus evidence is a great one that you should really think about as a physician. This is one of the reasons why I uh, love being surrounded by colleagues that ask this question all the time. And I think you too should ask this question: religion versus evidence. And in that vein, we have a ton of evidence about uh, young infants less than ninety days who are febrile. And that evidence really, if they are well appearing and and have really very reassuring CSF and urine cult and UAs and urine cultures at, at the 24 to 36 hour mark, that evidence would suggest that you are pretty safe at discharging that well appearing infant at the 24 to 36 hour mark. And that at the 36 hour mark, 97% of blood cultures that will be positive will have turned positive by that time. And, and I wanted to add in, so one of the things I tell the residents frequently that particularly the interns is, I think your intern year, you're just trying to learn a lot of the background information. Just let me learn about the diagnoses and how I treat and what generally people do. And then I think it is that second and third year for your categorical residents and your third and fourth year for your med-peds residents where you go from the background information, you feel pretty good about that. And now it's time to start questioning the things that are going on around you on a regular basis and, and asking what, what the evidence is for, for why we're doing that. So I really encourage people, I think, just as Carrie said, question about what's going on. And so that means when you have a patient who has an asthma exacerbation, ask why in the world am I giving them antibiotics if you find them the next day getting antibiotics? Or when you're about to write the orders, Ask yourself, why am I going to give this child uh, an antibiotic? And in your patients who have an asthma exacerbation, ask them, ask yourself, why am I giving this NEB versus an MDI? What, what, which is the right thing to be doing right now? Is there the right thing? And hey, how can I make sure they know how to use this MDI well? And what's the right dose for the MDI to make sure that this patient's going to do well as they move forward? Excellent. You guys have anything to plug before we go? Well, can I just thank all the authors for our Things We Do For No Reason. First, Andy Auerbach, who let us do this crazy series in the Journal of Hospital Medicine, and Samir Shah, who's been extremely supportive since he's come on as the editor of the Journal of Hospital Medicine. And more importantly, all the people who take hours and hours and hours, because I drive everybody crazy as, as <laughs> one of the editors. I even drive Tony Brew, my co-editor, crazy as we as we work on these articles because we want them to be really, really great articles, but people put in a lot of time and effort and thank you so much for doing that. And if they have more ideas, we are sort of on a little hiatus. We're not taking new ideas or we're not accepting people's full write-ups until the end of the summer because uh, uh, we have way too many in the queue right now. But if you do have ideas, please feel free to send them to me and I'm going to be brave 
my email address at Cashlack Hopkins in Baltimore is L as in Leonard, F as in Frank at jhmi.edu. So if you have ideas uh, for things we do for no reason, please send them and we are would be happy to talk about how you might be able to write them up. But make sure your ideas are things we haven't done already. We we often get ideas that we've already done and then we just refer them to the articles. Uh, and then, of course, read lots of our articles. We, we're really excited about them, especially the ones that uh, Justin and Carrie did. Thanks for the email, Lenny. And we'll put your cell phone in the show notes. <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah my, my home address. Title. <laughs> and, and for people who are only listening to the Curbsiders, if you haven't heard of our, our, our sister brother podcast, the, the Curbsiders, there's definitely been several uh, things we do for no reason episodes over there. Um, we've talked to Tony Brew on one of the hotcakes episodes that I produce. So definitely check those out too. There's lots of things we do for no reason that we can all learn about. And that apply to pediatrics. And Carrie, are we, we're always looking for great hospitalists at Hopkins, right? That's right. That's right. You, you guys said yeah. you guys didn't have any openings. <laughs> COVID changed everything. <laughs> it was just last year we didn't have any openings. Just oh. If you just you just graduated at the wrong time. Oh, man. That's right. With COVID, <laughs> we can't hire enough. <laughs> no, but thank you guys for this. This is great. And I thank you to, you know, to all the learners that let me do my soapbox day in and day out that uh, make my job fun and all the patients because without them be pretty boring to be a doctor mm -hmm. which we've seen <laughs> over the last few months when patients are coming to the hospital it's kind of crazy this has been another episode of the Cribsiders for the kids get show notes at thecribsiders.com slash podcast and sign up for our mailing list known as knowledge food formula feeds to get our weekly show notes in your inbox. We are committed to providing you high value, practice changing knowledge and weight based dosings of fun. To do that, we need your feedback. So please subscribe, rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts or contact us at thecribsiders at gmail.com. Special thanks to our assistant producer for this episode, Dr. Nicholas Lee. Thank you guys for joining. Tonight, I have been Dr. Justin Lee Burke. And this has been Chris the Chew Man Chew. Thank you and good night. Hey, you've already listened to the entire episode. Now claim CME credit. Continuing education credit is provided by VCU Healthcare Continuing Education. VCU is accredited to provide continuing education to the entire healthcare team. Check it out at cribsiders.vcuhealth.org for more information and to claim your credit after listening to this episode.